Coming up on this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. We used to think these drugs made you crazy. Yeah. Right? But now, now they, they make, make you sane, sane right? <laughs> Welcome to The Doctor's Pharmacy. This is Dr. Mark Hyman. That's pharmacy with an F, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, a place for conversations that matter. Today's guest is Michael Paul, and you all know very well from his work on food, which we're not going to talk much about today. <laughs> but he is uh, the author of a book that really changed my thinking about the food and food system called The Omnivore's Dilemma. He wrote Botany of Desire. He's gotten lots of New York Times bestsellers. His new book called How to Change Your Mind, uh, the, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence is an extraordinary book. It's like a journey through history and a journey through the mind in a way that I think will change our thinking forever about how to use plant substances and various kinds of compounds in novel ways to treat things that we're not very good at treating in medicine. So I'm so glad to have you here, Michael. You've oh, it's great to be here, Mark. Named Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. And you certainly influenced me. Uh, you've got a great book called Cooked, too, which I read. A great Netflix special people should watch called Cooked. So we're going to talk about your journey through... Your trip, yeah, <laughs> so my to trip. Speak, through the world of psychedelics and the research. So, you know, your book is 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 an extraordinary narrative about how we started on the journey of exploring psychedelics and psychiatry, how we stopped, and now there's a resurgence of interest in treating all these recalcitrant conditions that conventional medication just doesn't really work very well with depression, anxiety, addiction, addiction, cigarette smoking, alcohol. Uh, and even death, even death. So um, what inspired you to start writing about psychedelics as opposed to food? Yeah, so it seems like a kind of radical shift, yeah. and in some ways it is, um, but there are continuities too. I've, I've always been interested in our relationship to plants. Mm. That's been my obsession. Uh, you know, I've been a gardener since I was yeah. a little kid, and in Botany and Desire, which you mentioned, uh, I was looking at how plants... Uh, advance themselves by gratifying our desires. And, and, and one of them is for food, obviously. Another is for beauty. But another, and a, and a kind of idiosyncratic one, is our apparently universal desire to change consciousness. Yeah. And in Botany Desire, I looked at cannabis. I've written on opium. Um, and always, always trying to alter our brain and our mood, right? Yeah, why? You know, and why? Why is that adaptive? Caffeine, I mean, alcohol, exactly. sugar. Al every culture, every culture has some with one exception, the Inuit, where nothing good grows. Um, <laughs> every culture has some plant or fungus they use, mushroom, to change consciousness. And it could be in a very mild way, like caffeine, although I think caffeine is a pretty profound drug in its own way. Or it could be to relieve pain, mm -hmm. as we do with opium and opiates. Um, and then you've got these more radical ones that, that you know, give us a, a really disruptive psychedelic experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's been a longstanding interest and it's part of my wider interest in nature and our engagement with the natural world. Um, and then I came across this research that was going on uh, at NYU and at Johns Hopkins. Yeah, we had Tony Boss on the show here. Oh, great. Tony's <laughs> He's great. great. He's a good friend. I just saw him uh, a couple of weeks ago in Portland. And, uh, you know, this, this was such a striking study. And, and we have so little to offer people who have a cancer diagnosis. I mean, we have oncology, obviously, but, but to help them deal with their fear and anxiety. And, you know, morphine doesn't help with that. And it just dulls people. 
And they were uh, administering psilocybin in a guided session. Uh, so it's very different than the way you might use it recreationally. Um, like going to a Grateful Dead concert. No, no, no. It's like you're with a therapist, prepares you very carefully for what to expect, sits with you the whole time, helps you integrate the experience later. And um, and they were getting these remarkable results. Uh, you know, something like 80% of the, uh, the volunteers had uh, statistically significant reductions in depression and anxiety. And I started talking to them, and they had mm -hmm. the most amazing stories of, of personal transformation, of spiritual um, insight, and, uh, and, and many of them lost their fear of death uh, or of recurrence. And um, I got really curious about this, mm. and so decided that there, was, uh, you know, that there was a book to do. I was also you yeah you wrote the, you wrote the uh, the trip doctor in New yeah, York for the, magazine yeah which trip was a treatment for the trip treatment and yeah. that was my that was my introduction to yeah. the subject and that's when I decided I oh god I just barely scratched the surface but as you suggested one of the big surprises was that this uh, this research had been going on and it had been very productive all yeah. through the fifties and into the sixties yeah well, you wrote there's like a thousand studies on forty thousand subjects subjects yeah <laughs> like and six international conferences on LSD in that fifteen year period so it was a yeah, really, Cary Grant took like Cary Grant had like fifty six <laughs> guided trips <laughs> unbelievable had, yeah and and a great many people uh, on the west coast especially were getting psychedelic therapy psychiatrists were giving people moderate doses of LSD. It was called psycholytic therapy to just kind of loosen them up and, and make their unconscious material more available and make them less defensive. The original microdosing? <laughs> In a way it was. It was, it was somewhere between micro and macro. It was, it was like 75 micrograms. And, uh, and so this was news to me because like a lot of people, I thought psychedelics were a, a creature of the 60s. Mm. And in fact, they're really a creature of the 50s that when it went awry in the 60s and we had this backlash essentially beginning in the mid 60s and and the, the research was stopped and it's just resumed yeah it was and the whole turn on tune in drop out yeah. timothy leary advice that kind of exactly. derailed it <laughs> yeah i mean it, it it you know the drugs had gotten into the counterculture and they were very disruptive they were uh you know nixon thought that they were sapping the will of american boys to fight in vietnam and he may well have been right and he was like timothy leary's the most dangerous man in america yeah which is amazing although he had two most dangerous men in america he said daniel ellsberg was also oh, the most yeah, dangerous man in america yeah uh, and I think <laughs> the pentagon was, papers yeah exactly so um this so i started writing about this renaissance and looking at it from several different perspectives i mean the therapeutic perspective the neuroscientific perspective trying to figure out how it works and then a personal perspective. I decided there was no way to write about this work without having my own psychedelic experiences, which, believe it or not, I hadn't had until I was in my late 50s. That's hard to believe as a you know guy who grew up in the late 60s and 70s. Like, how did you escape I missed that? the party. You must have been like that really anxious kid who didn't ever want to take any drugs is afraid he's going to go crazy, right? That was all, me. Because yeah. of all the bad press. Well, I, had, I had read all the scare <laughs> stories, and, and I would have, you know, the I bad internalized trips. this. Yeah, bad trips, psychotic breaks, people thinking they could fly and jumping off buildings, uh, staring at the sun till they went blind. There was a lot of disinformation <laughs> out there. And uh, yeah, I was, uh, I didn't think I was sturdy enough for it. <laughs> so it's, it's something that, that has been in existence across cultures. Thousands of years. Thousands of years. Yeah. Whether it's ayahuasca ceremonies or the mushrooms in Mexico and the, uh, uh, and the curanderos who did it there. I mean, there, there was so much of this across cultures. I read a fascinating book uh, called The Cosmic Serpent, which oh, you yeah. might have read, yeah. which talks about ayahuasca and the biology of how it affects our perception in, and actually 
I don't know if it's true or not, and you came across this, but everywhere in these cultures is this image of a double helix, like the mm-hmm. DNA. Yeah. And he suggested maybe yeah, this is Michael Harner. Yeah, I think that, we, it is. We yeah actually, that we're actually seeing, seeing the DNA. photons, the, it, it, perceiving the photons of light that get emitted from the DNA uh, through this liberating of our, our neurotransmitters that affect it. So that that some of this happens at birth and death. We release these sort of endogenous yeah. molecules that help us sort of see the light, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, well, but this is a way of sort of getting a bypass there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. It, it's very provocative. There's there is a school of thought that uh, the brain produces its own DMT yeah. in the pineal gland. dimethyltryptamine, right? And yeah. um, it's been found in very small amounts in rats. You know, you can't sample the living brain uh, easily for chemicals. And um, uh, and there has been though some recent research where they asphyxiate rats. Um, and induce cardiac arrest, and there are these flushes of, of neurotransmitters that are uh, released. Mm. Um, I think they found serotonin, dopamine. I don't know that they found DMT, though. Mm. Um, so it might explain, there's a lot of likeness between the DMT experience and the near-death experience that yeah. people report. This sense of uh, leaving your body and being able to observe yourself from another perspective happens in both cases. Yeah. Uh, so all that's very provocative. I mean, I think that we're really just on the threshold of learning what these drugs have to teach us about the brain and the mind. And um, I think the next 10 years are gonna be amazing in, in psychedelic Well, well you, you said something very provocative. You said, we used to think these drugs made you crazy. Yeah. Right? But now, now they, they make, make you sane, sane right? <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, psychiatry went from brainless to mindless. Right. Meaning we didn't really focus much on the brain and psychiatry with Freud, it was all about your mother. Right. And then we started focusing only on the brain through neurochemistry and drugs that alter your brain chemistry. But and we left a, the mind out. The mind out, right? So behaviorism, yeah, yeah, and, and it's true. And and what's what what psychedelic research um, will lead to, I think, is a reintegration of brain and mind. You really mm-hmm. need both. This is obviously a chemical effect, but it's also a psychological effect. Um, mm-hmm. You're you're when you're using this therapeutically you're not just administering a drug per se, you're administering a kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And the best predictor for success, whether you're treating depression, anxiety, uh, addiction, is that people have the so-called mystical experience, uh, which is characterized by a sense of your ego dissolving, a sense of merging into something larger, your your defenses are completely down and and you feel very connected to nature or the universe or other people. Mm And this uh, sense of well-being, this transcendence of space and time, it's a very specific, well-defined phenomenon that is you know, throughout religious history, but can be induced by a high dose of psilocybin or... or uh, it was like or a spiritual LSD. bypass a little bit. In a way, it is. It is. It's, it, I mean, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. The American researchers all talk about it in spiritual terms. Mm-hmm. The English re- researchers are a little more allergic to that vocabulary. Yeah. They talk about it more in psychodynamic terms. Yeah. And, but I think they're talking about the same thing. Well, what's interesting, I heard you speak at South by Southwest, and you were talking about this part of the brain called the deep default mode network. Mo- mo- default mode network. And, and you said something that sort of just caught my attention, which is that in very experienced meditators, like Tibetan monks who've been in a cave for nine years, mm-hmm. they're able to have the same effect on their brain on functional MRIs as those people who take psilocybin or LSD, yeah. that it, it suppresses this part of the brain that's sort of our ego. 
Yeah, I mean, right? it's uh, you Can know, you talk the, about that. Yeah, the, well, it's this is one of the most interesting findings in the in the kind of basic science around uh, psychedelics. They began putting people into MRI machines and administering uh, LSD and psilocybin, and they wanted to see what their what was going on in their brains, what was activated, what was deactivated. Their expectation was that there would be general activation because there's such fireworks, right, that people report in the experience. The big surprise was there was a deactivation of this default mode network, which um, is a, a group of tightly linked structures, uh, connects the prefrontal cortex to the posterior singular cortex to a deeper, older uh, structures involved in memory and emotion. Pretty impressive for a journalist and all those brain parts <laughs> I'm, i still struggle with brain anatomy frankly it's like neuroanatomy that's not easy it's not easy at all and um it's just like a big mush of like this jello thing but there's so much anatomy in it it's it like, so specific <laughs> and you know our thinking now about the brain is it's, it is very networked it's not about individual parts do very specific things they're all linked in very interesting ways and the linkages are just as important so the default mode network is involved in self-reflection uh theory of mind the ability to impute mental states to others a time travel the ability to think about the future and the past which mm. you really need to construct an identity yeah. right i mean you, i mean oliver Sacks showed us if you don't have a memory you you don't have an identity mm. um and uh the so-called autobiographical self which is the the function of kind of building the story of who we are out of what happens to us and that happens appears to happen in the posterior cingulate cortex so yeah, it, to the extent that the ego has an address, it would be in the default mode network. And this uh, is, is basically, it's not completely turned off, but it's down-regulated. And when they also did similar fMRIs of meditators, long-term meditators with 10,000 hours of experience, they found the same pattern, mm. uh, uh, the deactivation of the default mode network, which, which makes sense in, in that both involve ego dissolution, yeah. right? I mean, you're you're transcending your ego in meditation if you're very experienced uh, and quieting the part of the self chatter. I mean, because because the default mode network is where you you go to mind wander, worry, uh, all that. Well, that's it. I mean, it's exactly. I think you're hitting on something that's so key, which is that suffering comes from identifying with your ego, and that the liberation of suffering, according to the Buddhist tradition, is yeah. realizing that that's just an illusion. And, and that you you're not have... really separate, and that the right. meditation is a technique to help you actually realize that and break that attachment to your worries or right. or, or everything really, and that attachment is the basis of of suffering. Yeah, I mean the Buddhists figured this out a really long time it's amazing. ago. Amazing, and now you know neuroscience is moving in a very similar direction. So we've got we've got this this new idea that you proposed in the Washington Post and in your book uh, about this grand unified theory of mental illness. Mm -hmm. That how does this one drug or this yeah. one actually plant compound affect all these disparate disorders like depression anxiety yeah. well, and that, that, addiction and i was very skeptical obsession. about that yeah. i said you know this sounds like a panacea why why does it work on so many different things and i mentioned this to tom insel the psychiatrist mm -hmm. who used to be head of the national institute of mental <laughs> he's health he's a great guy he is a great guy and he was very helpful to me in understanding this and he said you know you have to understand that these separate diagnoses are really a artifact of the insurance industry yeah. and the fact that we need a different diagnosis for all these things mm -hmm. he said all those things depression anxiety addiction obsession may be manifestations different manifestations of a similar brain malfunction and the thinking on the part of the psychedelic researchers is, is that all these are 
uh, products of a stuck brain, mm-hmm. of a brain that is is caught in loops of rumination yeah. and uh, the repetition of destructive patterns of thought. And if you think about it, they're all habits of one kind or another. They're, they're, it's, 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 it's telling yourself the same destructive story over and over again. You know, I'm unworthy of love. I, I, I can't get through the day without a cigarette. Um, you know, I'm worthless, whatever it is. Mm. And what the drugs seem to do, it's like if you had a steel structure, they introduce heat and they allow it to become more flexible. They, they help you anneal it. And um, they're really good at getting people to break out of the grooves of destructive patterns of thought. And, and that's why I say in the book at some point that maybe psychedelics are wasted on the young because it's as we get older, <laughs> it's as we get older that we get stuck in these yeah. patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, we all develop these algorithms for dealing mm-hmm. with life and mm-hmm. they may be efficient, but um, they can also be quite destructive. Well, a lot of mental illness also is connected to a sense of isolation yeah, and disconnect and separateness and loneliness. And uh, in, in a way, these drugs often will give you a sense of deep connection with yeah. life, with others, with meaning, with purpose in ways that other drugs just don't do. And the, what's well, interesting is that these drugs don't work by ongoing effects because you take one dose and you got six months of benefit yeah and it doesn't make sense from a medical point of view except no. for the fact that it links but to this experience of perception. yeah no th- that's why it really is the experience and we know that experiences change brains i mean look at trauma right trauma changes mm. brains yes uh all experience is learning and learning changes the brain and you can think of it as uh, as roland griffith has proposed as a as a reverse trauma Mm-hmm. a powerful positive experience that can reset the brain in the way a trauma does too. Um, it is, you know, I think it's, I, I just think it opens up a whole new way of thinking about behavior change. Yeah. And I think that that is something we really, really struggle with. Adults have a lot of trouble changing habits. I mean, we know from the food area, mm-hmm. getting adults to change their habits around food is really hard. They really get locked in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know the disconnection that you're talking about i think is key but what disconnects us it's the ego the ego yeah. builds walls yeah. the ego defends us and as it gets overactive look egos are great they do a lot of very positive things yeah you um, need it to survive it. they're very adaptive <laughs> there's a reason evolution gave us an ego yeah. but they also uh they also cut us off yeah they also cause us to objectify the other and in depression, you have an overactive default mode network mm-hmm. and ego mm-hmm. that is turned inward, is punishing you. And um, to be relieved of that, that dictator yeah. um, sometimes is exactly what people need. Yeah, no, I, I first sort of started learning about this when I, I took this class at Cornell called Plants and Humans. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of a fluff class, but <laughs> it was fascinating across agriculture, but also across this whole place and the intersection of consciousness and plant medicines and ritual and ceremony and i became fascinated and i read doors of perception aldous huxley about his journey with mescaline and you know i started experimenting with these in a very sort of ritualistic Mm -hmm. setting usually in nature with a couple of close friends where we really sort of dropped in Uh it wasn't like taking mushrooms and going to a grateful dead concert and it was profound it really it gave me that sort of quick like view of a world that I hadn't really seen before. You know, I'd read about, mm-hmm. thought about, but 
uh, never directly experienced. And it, I think it really impacted my view of humanity, my view of my place in the world, my view of death, my, mm-hmm. my fear of you know, success or not success. It really helped dissolve that, that ego separation in a way that kind of was a profound shift for me. And I, and I studied Buddhism, that was my major in college. So really? I was studying the yeah. psychology of consciousness at the same time, and you know, I took my 10 day meditation retreats. And I remember I, after one 10 day meditation retreat where you're meditating like 12 hours a day, I came out and I literally felt like I was tripping. Yeah. I like, I literally, everything was like sparkling. All my senses were enlivened. I wow. felt connected to everything in nature. Everything was moving. It was like, it was really the same experience. But who has 10 days to sit for 12 hours? Well, I, you know, I think you're right. I think part of what psychedelics are is a shortcut. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and some people think for that reason it's cheating in some ways. And it, and you have to work harder to get to the same place with meditation. But it's a very similar place. I mean, I've heard other people. I've never done a long meditation retreat. I'd be really curious to try. Yeah. But um, I, I've heard that people get to that kind of state. Yeah. And um, it, I don't get think a sore back and sore knees and yeah, like... <laughs> all that, too. Um but I don't think it's an accident that all the prominent American Buddhists, the people who brought Buddhism to America mm-hmm. beginning in the 70s, yeah. the Jack Kornfelds, Joan Halifax, um, uh, John yeah. Kabat-Zinn, yeah. they all started with psychedelics. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, That's and where Richard were, Albert, who was Ram Dass, yes. started. And, right. Oh, yeah. No, the links are strong. And now we know the links are, are in the brain also. Um, uh, Judson Brewer, who's a really interesting psychiatrist at Brown, who's, who uh, runs John Kabat-Zinn's mind, uh, Mindfulness Institute uh, at the medical school there, he, he was the one who, who saw the similarity between these brain scans of the default Amazing. mode network. And he really believes that um, someday we might use psychedelics to kickstart a meditation practice. Yeah. That it, it kind of primes the brain for that kind of consciousness. And I know in my own case, Having had these psychedelic experiences, I became a much more uh, successful or happy meditator. I, I could, I was just much better at kind of going to that place where I could quiet my thoughts than I was before. So I, I, I think the, I think the links are really interesting. And what's so important is that this is an area of medicine which we really suck at. You know, <laughs> like it's, I mean, it's, mental it's, illness is—I don't know if you know this—but it's, it's the number one driver of indirect and direct costs in the healthcare system. I did not Even know Even more that. than heart disease and cancer. When you add in all the, the years of disability lost and lost productivity, because it happens throughout people's life, whereas heart yeah. disease and cancer may happen later. In terms of loss of quality of life years and the total loss of productivity and engagement in society, it's the biggest cost driver. And it creates so much suffering. And there's nothing that really and works. And it's getting worse. And I mean, it's getting well, worse. An epidemic I mean, the epi- opioid epidemic, yeah. all these things. And these drugs seem to be, or I don't want to call them drugs, they're plant medicines. Yeah seem to be able to be a, a solution and it feels like we can't get there fast enough. Yeah, <laughs> look, we do have a crisis in mental health care and if you compare mental health care to any other branch of medicine, it's achieved much less. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about oncology, cardiology, infectious disease, we have, we have extended lifespans, reduced suffering in significant ways mm-hmm. and you can't say that about mental health care. Um, and we treat symptoms by and large, uh, with the with the psychiatric drugs we have. The drugs we have have often terrible side effects. Yeah. People don't like taking them. They have to take them every day for the rest of their lives. Um, and in many cases, they don't work. 
Uh, make you gain weight and become impotent. So yeah, no, they have. Oh, they, they're just you know <laughs> that'll make you depressed. And then they're hard. Yeah, and they're hard to get off too. Yeah, um, they're you know getting off an SSRI puts you at enormous risk for yeah. for suicide. Yeah. So we need new tools. We need innovation. There hasn't been much innovation in this space in, in since the nineties. Um, and uh, and and along comes this new slash old treatment. Um, and these are all public domain chemicals and plants. Mm-hmm. Um, that appears, I mean, I, I think there's more work to be done to prove it. They still need to do the big phase three trials, but based on the, the, the pilot studies in the phase two trials, there's a really strong signal here that we've got something important and yeah. boy, do we need it. Yeah. It's so, it's so critical. So you, you, as part of your research for your book, um, having been a scared hippie in the sixties and <laughs> the seventies decided to take a dive and take a trip, several uh, multiple trips, uh, using many of these yeah. compounds. Um, how was that for you? What did you learn? How are you different? And what did it do to help you understand this yeah. landscape? Well, I did it out of you know deep curiosity because I was talking to these people and they were having these transformative and spiritual experiences. And I was like kind of jealous uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, and curious as to what that was like. But I also it's kind of like what I like to do as a writer. I put mm-hmm. my, you know, when I wrote about the cattle industry, you I bought, bought a cow. cow. Yeah, yeah I remember I that. built a house to write about architecture. <laughs> yeah. And so I like putting myself in, in that place where I can write about an experience that I'm having for the first time. Mm-hmm. There's a quality of wonder you can capture the first time you do something that you can never capture again. Mm-hmm. So even though they're more experienced psychonauts than me, mm-hmm. They've done it. They've been there. They've done that. It's just not as, uh, mm-hmm. I'm hoping I capture something unique yeah. by writing about it first time, kind of late in life. <laughs> um, so, but I was very reluctant to do it at the same time. Mm. I was very nervous about it. Um, I didn't know what I would discover. I, I thought, you know, <laughs> some I, crazy dude in there. <laughs> yeah, some crazy dude in there. I mean, it was just like, it, it just, you know, my life is, wasn't broken. Things were settled. And here I'm going to blow things up. My wife, Judith, was like, very nervous about it you know she was like i don't want you to change um it didn't enter her consciousness that i might change well you're writing a book on how to change your mind yeah i know i know (laughs) (laughs) then i think that put her off in the end she became incredibly supportive but she had this initial reluctance i mean you know you you're in a long-term relationship i let her speak for herself on that um (laughs) you're in a long-term relationship and suddenly someone's gonna have a big experience on their own and you're not and it so potentially it, it's yeah. it drives a wedge um but her thinking changed about that um the experiences were all fascinating several of them were incredibly useful and transformative hmm. in in terms of my understanding of myself and uh and nature uh, hmm. especially um one of them was terrifying um and i wouldn't wish on anyone although even that ended with a profound sense of gratitude um so that it was over or so <laughs> <laughs> yes that was over um but uh and then i still existed yeah i i had this um well i can tell you about it later but um the 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 really good experiences were about relationships uh, i had an lsd trip guided lsd trip with an underground guide uh, who was a, a wonderful man who i had great trust in and it wasn't a particularly high dose uh, lsd experience it was like 150 micrograms and um it was all about people in my life uh, one after another kind of presented themselves to me and i was thinking about my son and i was thinking about my wife and my parents and feeling this surge of love and and just 
you know, we don't stop. We we take our relationships for granted, mm-hmm. and 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 it was just this afternoon of of uh, connection, feeling this mm-hmm. very strong connection with them. It was wonderful. Um, and you know, I had the classic LSD insight that love is the most important thing in the universe. Pretty much, it's true. <laughs> but it is true at the same time. It's a hallmark sentiment, but it's also true. And and that I think that's part of our lives that we we develop this this uh, you know code of irony and. Um, we're afraid of strong sentiment and yeah, especially as a journalist to be objective yes, and, right. and we're and very skeptical and, and ironic cynical, right? and, and so you know and I, I wrote about the struggle of writing about that um how do you convey the power of that feeling when it sounds so banal and mm-hmm. uh, but the line between profundity and banality sometimes is very fine yeah um on a, a psilocybin trip i had without a guide in a very safe place like yours in nature um I understood my relationship to plants in a way I hadn't before. I, mm-hmm. I'd all, you know, I wrote a book with whose subtitle was A Plant's Eye View of the World. I had this idea, and it was more of an intellectual conceit, that plants have their own subjectivity. You know, we shouldn't think of them as mute objects. They're working on us yes. at the same time as we work on them, which is true in a co-evolutionary sense. Yeah. But it suddenly became true in a direct emotional felt sense, and that the, the plants in my garden were returning my gaze. They were all conscious in some sense not like Mm. us um but i shouldn't just treat them as mute objects yeah and i felt profoundly i've never felt more a part of nature i think most humans feel a little distance even when we're having a positive nature experience that we're different that we have a relationship to nature which is a bizarre idea that we're not part of it yeah yeah Yeah. and um i i felt completely part of it for the first time in my life and that was a, a profound feeling i was just one species among among many um and then i had a guided psychedelic trip that really changed my understanding of my ego um i had uh i was in a uh, i was working with a guide on the east coast who uh created an environment where i felt safe enough to really let go and it was a pretty high dose uh psilocybin trip and um I saw my ego just burst into a little cloud of post-it notes and then then was spread out on the ground like a coat of paint. And it was like me and I was fine with it. But I don't know who this new I was that was fine with it. And it remains a real mystery that this this new perspective emerged on my life that wasn't ego. It was perfectly objective. It was untroubled, um, perfect equanimity. I don't know what it was to this day. I mean... Aldous Huxley would have said it was the mind at large. It was some kind of collective consciousness. I don't know. Um, But I learned during that experience that not to be afraid about the death of the ego, Mm. that there is another ground on which we can stand, that the ego is part of our mind, but it's not the only part, and we're not identical to it. Now, 10 years of psychotherapy, you could probably get to that perspective on your ego, yeah. but this was, this was one afternoon. It's pretty cheap. Yeah, it was really cheap. When you think about the amount of money we spent in psychiatry, this is a cheap solution. You know, it, 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 you're talking, it really made me think of my learnings in the Buddhist psychology, which is really about understanding that you're not your thoughts, you're not yeah. your mind, that there's a level of, of pure consciousness that's outside of that. Yes. That, and, and everything plays it. within that arena and, that's and you don't freedom. have to yeah because if you if you're if you're identified with your physical being and your body you you suffer it's painful yeah, sure. it's fear and you're I, I remember a couple of years ago i got very sick i had mold in my house and oh. i had an antibiotic for a root canal that gave me c diff and i got oh, i lost 30 pounds i was in bed for five months i literally couldn't function 
and I it started with the mold. It started with the mold. Yeah, I was caught. It was just a whole litany of things. I broke my arm and my system just collapsed. And I was in bed for five months and couldn't do anything. Thank God my wife was there taking care of me. But it it was I was I could get that I was not my emotions. I was not my mind because that wasn't working anymore. I was not my body because that wasn't working anymore. But there was this other thing going on. And it was it was a very mystical experience, even though it was miserable. Yeah, you know, I was nauseous. But you were able seven. to detach for a lot of this. Yeah, and I think it was those experiences. Were you medi- could you meditate during this? I couldn't period? meditate. I was just completely gone. Like, yeah. but I had this awareness, like this, and they call it, you know, this pure mind bodhicitta yeah. in, in the Buddhist tradition. It's like you have this consciousness that you don't identify with this bag yeah. of flesh and bones that we right. are, and you you're connected in a way to something bigger and more yeah. meaningful. And I think that's... It's very similar. It's very yeah. interesting. It does it does show you another space in which to exist mentally. Yeah. Has it, has it changed your life in any way after? Like in terms of... In some life? ways, I feel like... I mean, I'm back to baseline in a lot of ways. Um, and it's been several years since I've had one of these experiences. Um, but I do feel I have a little more perspective and that I can catch... I can catch out my ego and just realize, oh, I can turn down the volume on that. I don't have to listen to that. Yeah. I and mean, that's that's one character in my mind. It's not the only one. And right. that's really useful, yeah. I think. And, you know, if you ask my wife this question, she she feels that I've changed in subtle but meaningful ways, that I'm more patient, more open. The, the example she cited that was interesting, because a lot of people ask me the question you just did is, so how have you changed? And of course, your partner knows better than anybody right. else. It's yeah. hard to judge it on yourself. <laughs> yeah. But she said um, that uh, the death of my father, which happened a year ago, January, um, he, she thought I handled that very differently than I would have before. Mm. Mm. And that I was, I was very present. I came to New York and uh, moved into the apartment for the last 10 days, and I was with him every day. And I wanted to be there. I really mm. wanted to be present. Mm. And, you know, death is one of the things we defend ourselves against. It's yeah. one of the things our ego is busy, like, shutting us off from. But I, I felt like I could say everything I needed to say. I was available as available to him as I possibly could be for this, you know, very difficult but also very moving period of time. And my guess is before I'd had these experiences and spent so much time interviewing these cancer patients, perhaps, I would have found ways to not be there quite that much mm-hmm. and, and to kind of protect myself from the, the, the pain. emotional pain yeah. of that. Um, so I think she's right. I mean, that, that feels intuitively correct. And, and yeah. I do credit the psychedelic experiences for that. Yeah, I haven't seen you since you wrote the book. I, uh, and and you're, there's some difference in the quality of your energy. I can't really, really? describe it, but <laughs> you, it is a, a sense of like openness and connection, mm-hmm. and it's great. It's awesome. So I, you know, there there are moments <laughs> when I uh, I've been like uh, feeling, uh, you know, being interviewed or criticized for my work or something. And I remember there was somebody somebody got up at a conference and was giving me a lot of grief for you know not enough women in my book and, um, <laughs> you know we're in that moment and and that comes up and, yeah and I and I'm, and I'm listening to her talk and I'm in front of a group of people at Esalen and I'm like wow I'm, where it all started where it all the started. room where yeah. it happened right? yeah and I'm thinking god I'm not being defensive I don't feel defensive yeah I'm gonna let her talk and I'm gonna answer it and I'm not gonna get defensive and yeah. and and that's awesome it's like okay that's helpful <laughs> yeah so Let's talk about some of this research because it's not just about getting at peace with death. It's not just about no. depression, anxiety, but other things that are super hard to treat, like addiction. Yeah. Um, Addiction is one and of the even most even post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. which is so rampant. And things we haven't tried yet. Like I think 
there is enormous potential to treat eating disorders. Yeah. And eating disorders are you know one of the toughest psychiatric indications. It has the lowest rate of success with therapy, the highest mortality of any psychiatric illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have very we have really poor tools. And it is another form of a, a rigid mind that needs to be loosened, a habit of thought, um, getting trapped in loops and, and false stories about yourself, mm-hmm. about your body image. Um, so I think the addiction work is really exciting. Uh, it's, been, it's been done so far with cigarette smokers at Johns Hopkins. It's in process now, a second study. Uh, alcoholics at NYU, big study, I think 200 and some odd uh, patients. And hard cases, this is Bellevue, these are, you know, street alcoholics and people who are really tough cases and uh, cocaine addicts at university of alabama that had had terrific success hmm. the thinking on addiction is that um well there's two there didn't I, the founder of aa actually have a yes. psychedelic experience yeah, Bill w. and then wanted to actually yes include an aa and lsd and the board said nah, i don't think this it goes with our brand um <laughs> yeah he uh bill w had gotten sober on it wasn't technically a psychedelic. It was belladonna, which is a mm. deliriant, another mm. plant medicine. Mm. Um, but then he had LSD therapy in the 50s, and mm. he thought this could really help people get sober. And he was right. And there was a lot of research. One of the most exciting areas of research in the 50s was alcoholism. And there was a meta-analysis done a couple of years ago, and it looked like they were having success in about 50% of cases, which is really impressive. Yeah, um, considering I don't think it's AA about 10% to 15%. Yeah, that's right. No, it was very impressive. And so that's an important indication that is being worked on right now. What seems to happen is that um, addicts acquire this new perspective on their life. I and mean, people talk to me about like, the camera was pulled back further on the scene of my life than it ever had before. Mm. And I looked and I saw what I was doing, smoking, drinking, and I realized I'm killing myself and how stupid that is. And even though that's a pretty banal insight, um, it has a kind of stickiness during the psychedelic experience. Whatever insights people have feel more like revealed truths than opinions. Yeah. And, and, and that makes them, um, really sturdy. Yeah. And this is something William James talked about in describing the, um, the mystic experience. The he varieties said it, of religious experience. Yes. Yeah. yeah the, the, you know, the first American psychologist, uh, in, toward the end of the <clears throat> 1800s. Um, he said that there was a quality to mystic experience called the noetic quality. And that was this idea that this is, this is absolute knowledge. This is a state of knowledge, not just mm. of thought. And, um, and that seems right. Um, the people you know, who I interviewed just kind of came to these conclusions and then could actually live by them. And, you know, many of us have insights that we're eating poorly, we have these bad habits and they want to break them and maybe tomorrow or the next day and we manage mm. to put it mm. off and we just bracket the insight. Here it just kind of takes hold. Um, so that's very interesting. The other, the other way to look at it too, and uh, Steve Ross, who's the, uh, the doc at uh, NYU who's involved with the alcoholism study, is that in alcoholism you, or, or addiction, your connection to people atrophies as your connection to the substance mm-hmm. be- dominates That's your right. life That's right. and you're more connected to the bottle than you are to your family mm-hmm. um you will do you know you will let that you'll sacrifice them for mm-hmm. that that new relationship and that it re it restores the human connection mm-hmm. in a way that allows you to break the connection with the inanimate thing or the mm-hmm. the dopamine charge you're getting whatever it is so 
I don't know that we know the whole yeah. psychological mechanism at work, but um, it's it seems to be you know having higher rates of success. It's often combined with cognitive behavioral therapy uh, to help with the cravings. Because is it a biological phenomenon too, where it resets the brain? I don't know. I don't know the yeah. answer. It may. I mean, it does. It, you know, a lot of people talk about rebooting the brain yeah. and that this is like unplugging your computer and plugging it back in, yeah. and that things wipes the hard drive. <laughs> wipes the hard drive. Yeah. I mean the. One of the things that happens is when the default mode network, which is also a communications hub in the brain, when that goes offline, uh, the brain gets temporarily rewired. And there's an image in the book that shows the wiring in a, in a sober brain and the wiring in a psychedelic brain. And it's r radically different. In the psychedelic brain, brain networks that don't ordinarily talk to one another start talking to one mm -hmm. another. So dots are being connected in completely new ways temporarily. And this may be the kind of resetting hmm. that allows people to break out of these destructive patterns. Do, do those trials look at people who are acutely addicted and with, whether it stops withdrawal? You know, the, it doesn't, well, let's see. With alcoholism, I have to go back and check. I forget whether, I don't know. They don't get dry before they do the um because if you stop drinking, you get you can, seizures. Yeah, if you're an alcoholic, yeah. And, right. So I'm not sure how they're dealing with that. In the case of the opiate <clears throat> addicts, they're using something called ibogaine, I was gonna just ask which you is that. an African shrub. And uh, it, that work is not going on in this country. There's a lot of it going on in Mexico right now. Yeah, Ibogaine... Is there research or just clinical? It's clinical. I, I don't know of any research project now. There are people who are, who are proposing it. The problem with ibogaine is it's a really heavy drug. Mm -hmm. It implicates your heart in way you have to be on a heart monitor the whole time you're doing mm -hmm. it. Uh, it lasts like 36 hours, but it has the advantage of not only giving you the powerful mystical experience, but it, something about the chemical uh, deals with the cravings. You you lose your cravings. Well, not only that, you lose withdrawal. So yes, you, that's I right. Mean, you you don't go from being a heroin addict and having to go through withdrawal. You literally right. stop that process. Yeah. Which and that's kind of remarkable. fascinating from a you know brain chemistry point of view. What's actually yeah. happening? And I don't think we know what happens I, to the I, neuroreceptors, right? To the brain chemistry. Yeah. Is, no, we don't know. And 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 how is the dopamine system getting reset that it yeah. has what it needs? And and uh, so anyway, there's a lot more to be learned here. Uh, it's very promising given the opiate crisis that we have. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't we look at that here? If, if, well, if I seventy thousand people a year are dying. Yeah. And how many millions are actually using? Oh, yeah. Um, why wouldn't we want to look at that? It's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there are people proposing it. I think so many of the resources. Uh, well, one thing it's important to keep in mind that there is no federal money for this research. It's all privately funded. Mm -hmm. And this is, a, I think this is a scandal. I mean, I think there's a, there's a strong enough signal here that we've got powerful medicines to help with a crisis we have in mental yeah. health. And the it's government like Thomas Insel would be in on this game. If you you would think, and he's and he is now that he, but he's no longer head of the National Institute of Mental Health. And um, sure, he knows a few people. Yeah, but but as you know, the budget for all psychiatric research mm -hmm. is tiny mm -hmm. compared to the medical budget in general. Mm -hmm. But and I think the government probably thinks it's still too controversial. But so anyway, there's not quite enough resources to do everything we need to do. And I, I agree. I think given the opiate crisis, Ibogaine is really important to look at. I think it scares everybody because it's such an intense drug. And you're in a medical setting and you're wired yeah. up. And, and then Mexico, you know, they have clinics with, with anesthesiologists and cardiologists and yeah, they hook and, up look, IVs. Withdrawal and, is, a, is a you know medical crisis too. Mm -hmm. And um, so... Anyway, I, I haven't really delved into Ibogaine. 
and most of the work is in yeah is in Mexico, but there are clinics doing it, and they often combine it with five meo DMT, the uh, toad, the the, the toad, <laughs> and uh, which apparently helps people at the end of the experience to kind of mm. consolidate what mm. they've learned. I find that hard to believe because I had a because you had terrifying experience <laughs> on the toad. Yeah, um, that was my least happy experience. Um, so this is the smoked venom of the Sonoran Desert Toad. How and would anybody figure that out? You know, I, know. I am so impressed <laughs> with get this species. toad. And yes, <laughs> and and yes, the venom is toxic. But if I smoke it, it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and no toads are harmed in the making of the psychedelic. There, you know, you gently you can milk them essentially this venom, and then they they produce more mm. of it. Um, it's very milking a toad. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're smoking these crystals, the dried venom, yeah. and you smoke the crystals and you have only one puff and you are just shot out of a cannon. And the, the, the sensation is so destabilizing. Not only do you have a loss of sense of ego, but you have a loss of a sense of space and time and matter. It's all gone. It's just this pure storm of energy that is your brain, but it's the whole world. And, uh, it was just absolutely terrifying. But the best thing about it is it only lasts about 10 minutes. And although it felt like an eternity and then you gradually reassemble and you see reality reassemble and like, ah, there's time, there's space, there's matter. And <laughs> isn't life great? And, um, and I have a body that, that was the sense of gratitude I got from it. So the best part of it was is that it was ending. over. Yeah. It, it <laughs> but I mean, you know, as, terrifying experiences do they give us an appreciation for normal experience and mm -hmm. i felt you know most of us have expressed gratitude for being alive i felt gratitude that there was anything yeah <laughs> that there is not nothing <laughs> yeah interesting now you also write about um a different category of mental illness which is trauma yeah and post-traumatic stress and the use of some of these substances mdma, and also MDMA which, which is, is ecstasy, ecstasy. Right. yeah and it's a very different drug. Some people consider it a psychedelic, some don't. It doesn't work on the same receptor networks. Uh, it does implicate serotonin, but also it seems oxytocin. Um, and Which it, is the hormone that mothers... Is, right, it's about atta the attachment your, hormone, yeah. right? When they're like nursing. After you make love with someone, your oxytocin you levels Your go. levels rise, yeah. And um, the... The thinking here is, it's been, it's been, it's already in phase three trials. It's pretty far along. Uh, for Those treating are human clinical trials, basically. Yes. Oh, yeah. And big, big groups. Um, and this is to treat people with PTSD either from war or from sexual abuse or for whatever cause. Um, and Which is one in four people. It's an astonishing number. Um, and that, that's why I think it's a very exciting uh, area of, of, uh, of therapy. So it works a little different. You're guided in the same way. The drug doesn't give you a radically altered state of consciousness in that you're not seeing things that aren't there, but it, it seems to disarm the amygdala and your fear, your, your, your fight or flight response in a way that allows you to take out very difficult memories uh, and, and be very kind of clinical about them. And I've seen tapes of these soldiers. Um, they'll, they'll kind of go under for a long time and be thinking, and then suddenly they'll start talking to the therapist and, um, and they'll describe this horrible scene uh, that, that that traumatize them, and they'll do it in an absolutely affectless way. Mm. And it seems this the, the episode seems to lose some of its charge in being told, being taken out, told mm. that way, and then reconsolidated as a mm. memory. And you do this a couple times, and it seems to um, uh, take the edge off of it uh, in a way that allows people to go on with their lives. Because what happens with a traumatic memory is you can't control its 
it pops up in your mind and when it pops up all the associated emotions come up too and you're mm-hmm. and you're re-traumatized to have the memory without the emotions allows you to kind of get some perspective on it at least that's how i understand it and um i've it's, talked to a lot of people who've had this this and therapy. it helps them get through it yeah it helps them get through it and they, um, they many free. of them are no longer they on the there's a scale for you know PTSD and they're off the scale. Yeah, um, I have a friend who's uh, was in war zones in Africa and you know just the worst places you can imagine. And every night he suffers from night terrors and it's just you know it's just such a debilitating condition. Well, the VA the VA is spending you know a huge amount of money treating PTSD. It's so common, yeah. uh, especially. And are in they interested Iraq. in this? Yeah, they're nervous about it. They're starting yeah. to kind of dip their toes in. And Rick Doblin at MAPS, which is the organization that's been um, conducting the trials, is in conversations with people. And I think they're just a little nervous about the politics. But what's interesting is that the people on the far right have been supportive of this research because it can help the soldiers. People like Rebecca Mercer, who's yeah. a big Trump supporter. Steve Bannon has spoken very positively about MDMA therapy. So this may create the kind of political cover that allow the VA to, to really step in. We need to like at the next G20 summit meeting, have yeah. all the leaders take some MDMA well, that or was, maybe psilocybin and hang out. And- that was actually <laughs> Rick Doblin's idea in the eighties. He, he actually arranged to send, uh, I don't know how many, uh, ecstasy pills to the arms negotiators yeah. in the Soviet union. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I mean, in your book, you tell a funny story of how, uh, Timothy Leary gave Alan Ginsburg his first psilocybin trip, yeah. LSD trip, and he tried and to get on the phone with Khrushchev. Kennedy and Khrushchev and Mao Zedong. And, yeah, he said he had he was going to solve world peace. <laughs> right. Well, there is this sense, and you know, the, and many of the researchers feel that like this isn't just to treat individuals; this could treat a sick civilization. Mm-hmm. And if enough people had access to this, we could repair our relationship to the natural world. We could reconnect with people not like ourselves and mm-hmm. transcend our tribalism. So much divisiveness, right? Yeah, and that's a you know that's an appealing idea. I think how you put it into effect is really challenging. I mean, you're not going to give these drugs to everybody. You're not going to put it in the water supply. Um, when you think about it, you know, we spend so much money on psychiatric care and illness. You know, this is a thing that is non-patentable, but doesn't cost very much. Yeah that almost eliminates or reduces the need for psychotherapy. It's not like you do psychoanalysis four days a week for 25 years, like Woody Allen. Yeah. And it, it's a threat in a sense to the establishment because it's like, well, who's gonna make money from it? Yeah, no, the business model is a real challenge because from the pharmaceutical side, as you suggest, you have these public domain chemicals and mushrooms that anybody could grow. Um, so, and you, you're only gonna need one or two pills. Yeah, one or two and doses, you, you know, right. And so, <laughs> The, the pharmaceutical industry is only interested in drugs you take every day. Mm-hmm. And so how are they going to make money? And then on the psychotherapy side, it's intense amount of psychotherapy for the period of the, uh, you know, the preparation, the session and after it's, it's days of psychotherapy, but then it's over. So uh, it, it's going to force everybody to rethink. It's also important to understand it's not a drug therapy. It's this package. It, it should not be called psychedelic. Yeah medicine it should yeah. be called psychedelic assisted psychotherapy yeah. and you need the whole package and we don't have anything else like that and you mentioned uh, there's a company that's putting all that together right there putting is the there's a compass the pathways yes is a is a uh, english pharmaceutical company they're doing trials of treatment resistant depression with psilocybin both in this country and in uh, europe in like eight countries in europe and they're trying to sell a package that they will 
uh, offered to clinics and to national health services that comes with training training modules for the therapists, the drug, and um, and they think they can make it more economical, especially where you've got national health, um, where you don't have to worry about how you know how much money the pharmaceutical companies are making. Mm. Um, and uh, we'll see. We'll see if they can do it. I mean, they've got to get through these uh, phase three trials. Um, but they've got a lot, they've raised a lot of capital and, uh, they're, you know, it's a small company. My guess is as soon as they prove they can do it, they'll be gobbled up by a big pharmaceutical yeah. company. That, that's what passes for innovation in that <laughs> field. Um, but it's important to know that, you know, we have this crisis and if you talk to it's people huge. in pharmaceuticals, they're not even researching psychiatric medicines. They have, they're disinvesting in CNS drugs, central nervous system drugs. Yeah, and, they're, and, and, and they're among the most prescribed drugs yeah. that we have, in the top two or three usually every year. And so I don't understand why they would not be intensely interested in coming up with some new drugs for this. But, you know, this is a different paradigm. And, yeah. and it's gonna t- it's, it, it could revolutionize things. And it's going to take some new thinking on how to make it work, you know, to the extent it needs to make profits. Um, Have you talked you to the that? folks at the NIH or FDA? What is, what is their perspective on this? I've talked to people at FDA, and I've been struck by how supportive they've been. Um, no obstacles have been put in the way of these researchers yet. In fact, the FDA has encouraged them to go big. Uh, when they came and presented the phase two trials for the uh, cancer anxiety studies, thinking they wanted to get approval for phase three to treat more cancer patients for depression and anxiety, the FDA said, wait a minute, you've got a signal here that this is going to be effective with depression. Why don't you go ahead and do your cancer anxiety, but why don't you do another trial for major depression? Um, so that apparently was the FDA's idea. Wow. Um, so they're not resisting. Uh, and I think they feel the desperate need for new tools also. And I think that may be encouraging them. But um, I thought there'd be a lot of political resistance. The FDA's policy is that they're going to treat psychedelics like any other drug. If you've got a good proposal, you can study it. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, it's interesting. Probably a lot of people now in leadership positions in business have had experience. <laughs> right. Because they're yeah. all children of the 60s and the 70s. Well, that's where now as leaders, they're like, wait a minute, I did that. It wasn't so bad. And yeah. Kinda. I think you do have people <laughs> in charge of our major institutions. Look, I, I've talked to two former heads of the American Psychiatric Association who've talked to me about their own psychedelic experiences mm-hmm. and how they, how it influenced their, you know, their interest in the mind. Um, so there are a lot of people coming out of the closet too and talking yeah. about this openly and, um, yeah, I mean, weren't you worried about publicly writing about doing yeah. illegal stuff? I'm like, yeah, he's going to knock on my door or what? Well, uh, the I mean, book is very carefully lawyered. I mean, I had two lawyers read it and, um, <laughs> okay. I was, I was, you know, I, I was less nervous about myself. I knew that if I changed the time and the place, the jurisdiction of these experiences, that it was not a usable confession. Because there's a statute of limitations, oh, okay. it's not yeah, that long. Good. So, so basically, if I say you tried it in college, I'm, yeah, I'm you're, good. you're so not fine. Coming after you're me. so fine. <laughs> and uh, so, I'm I'm vague about where it happens, and I'm vague about when it happens. I was more concerned about my guides. You know, there are these underground therapists. They're very devoted people. Not your angels, but the uh... <laughs> no. <laughs> and they and and many of them are. There are some MDs doing this work, and there are some trained uh, therapists, and they're doing this at great risk to their own mm-hmm. freedom and and uh, their medical licenses or therapeutic licenses. Um, so I, I, it was very important I protect them and disguise yeah. just enough details about them um, that they were safe 
and uh, knock on wood, so so far none of them have had problems, and they're all very pleased to have been part of the you know to be to be written about. Seems like there's a sea change because Colorado just knows decriminalized going on. mushrooms, yeah. right? And Oakland is going to have a vote June fourth in the city council about doing the same thing, which yeah. is amazing. So. Yeah, something's happening. Um, the culture has moved more in the last year than I ever thought possible. And, um, you know, I, I don't take credit for that. I think that mm-hmm. what we do as journalists is kind of like, hopefully have pretty good antenna about where the culture is moving and we ride these waves. And But I feel a wave building around this and that mm-hmm. uh, that in five years, it's going to look, the landscape's going to look very different and th- that these will be accepted medicines and uh, and people will be talking about these transformative experiences in, in a way they now are closeted. It's amazing. And we're just beginning, really, right? We, it's about, really early days. There's, and there's so much basic science to be done. Um, there's, uh, there's so many more indications to be trialed. Andrew Weil believes they can help with psychosomatic illness, things like allergy, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's very strong on the mind uh, body sure. connection and uh he he thinks there's a whole area of uh, of uh autoimmune uh disease that needs to be looked at with this so mm-hmm. yeah exciting possibilities that's how he that's how he became what he was he was a harvard med oh, student yeah. who like got interested in mushrooms and psychedelics and went to south america and yeah. took a lot of drugs and, and wrote about it. his first book was actually from chocolate to morphine actually his first about- book was the natural mind Chocolate, chocolate to morphine came later. The Natural Mind is a book about drugs. Oh, yeah. And it's really interesting. Yeah. I read it. Um, and Andy, you know, hasn't been talking very much about psychedelics in the last 30 years or so, but he is now. We just yeah. did an event together. And Amazing. He, was, he, uh, he, he mocked my mere seven trips and, and <laughs> went on about his dozens and dozens of trips yeah. and, uh, and claims he was cured of sunburn by uh, psychedelics. Wow. Uh, that he was very fair and could not go in the sun without getting a really bad sunburn and uh but after psychedelics no problem and now he lives in the desert <laughs> and, and and some of the take-homes of this is like it's not a panacea um no it's but, not a panacea it, and there's a but there is a group of ailments that are on one end of the spectrum this of mental rigidity of mental stuckness and in, everything in that area seems to be susceptible to this intervention at the other end of the spectrum, you have things like personality disorder and schizophrenia. That's probably not going to help because these drugs introduce a certain amount of entropy into, into a mm. stuck mind. And, and at that end of the spectrum, the mind has enough entropy. Uh, it needs more order. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is the end where there's too much order. Yeah. So not a panacea, but very good for these products of the stuck brain. And, and, and you, you talk about it uh, as... Um, disabusing us of the luxury of mindlessness yeah right which is the way we mostly live which is not really present and and it sort of forces you to have an experience that can shift your quality of life really you know i i think that as valuable as this that that these medicines may be for people who are suffering with serious mental illness they have a value for all of us we're all dealing with mortality Mm -hmm. we're all dealing with disconnection we're all dealing with some kind of addiction, right? Um, it's a spectrum, right? It is a spectrum. Yeah, we're not, you know, we're not different from those right. people. We're just mm-hmm. on a different point in the spectrum. So, and I think that's a huge challenge. How do you make these 
medicines available to uh, well people. Um, and, you know, do you legalize them? I'm not sure. It's not like cannabis. It's a much stronger experience. Yeah. It is. It has much. It, it does have psychological risks. And you talk about set and setting being important. So important. Which is where you do it, who you do it with. Is it and the guided? mindset you have, the intention you have going into it. All these things matter. So I, I really believe the safest way to approach it is with a guide. And um, uh, because also some people need to be disqualified from taking it. If, you're, if mm -hmm. you have any risk of schizophrenia in your family, you really shouldn't take it. Mm -hmm. Certain psychiatric meds, you know, you shouldn't be on. If you're on SSRIs, the psychedelics, you, they won't hurt you, but they don't work because mm -hmm. um, it's occupying the same receptor. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it's you, much you know, less casual than cannabis. I mean, it, yeah. it really takes... It's not a party drug. It's definitely not a party drug. <laughs> What's and, fascinating is that is that it, it's safe. It's, it's not toxic, it's not toxic. And there's no side effects. So the, there's yeah. no lethal dose. I mean, you can go buy a bottle of Tylenol in the yeah. CVS and take it and you're dead. Yeah, that's Whereas right. you can swallow 400 mushrooms they have and not it's not gonna kill you. They have not found a lethal <laughs> dose, and, which is amazing. And it's also not addictive. Uh, so these are it's not, not addictive, it's safe. There's no toxic yeah. dose. Yeah, no, the, 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 the risks are- uh, It's almost good, too good to be true. <laughs> it does. I mean, you know, they're so targeted and there's so few molecules involved. You know, LSD doses are, it's like, I don't know of another drug that you take- Micrograms. In, micrograms. Um, but the risks are practical. You could do something stupid because you're impaired and you could walk out into traffic. Uh, and there, there are psychological. People do have bad trips and bad trips are terrifying. And in a recent survey of people who've had bad trips, 8% of them sought psychiatric help within the first year after. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, that's not nothing. And uh, so I, I think people have to approach it with a sense of deliberateness, reverence for the power of these, these medicines and, and not treat it as a, as a casual experience. No, I mean, historically, they've always been used in ritual and yeah. ceremony as a rite of passage, as a and way. And always of with an elder, of some guy. kind, a shaman or a uh, curandera uh, who knows the territory and can help people. But you're right, it's always with ceremony, it's with intention, and um, uh, and on special occasions, not right. not done regularly. <laughs> right, they're like, hey, that's a friends over on Saturday, let's get some, yeah. yeah. So you you uh, quote Stanislav Grav, who was a psychedelic psychiatrist uh, at Esalen, and, uh, he said, what the telescope was for astronomy and the microscope for biology, psychedelics will be for the understanding of the human mind. You know? Yeah. When I first read that, I thought, that's kind of overstating it, don't yeah. you think? Um, but I'm, I don't think it's so crazy anymore. I do think these are powerful tools for understanding the mind. Yeah. And we have so few. Consciousness, you know, is beyond the reach of science as we know it, mm -hmm. has been. Um, you can't measure it. I mean, you can measure the lack of it, but you can't mm. measure it really. And, mm. and so you depend on people's reporting uh, on phenomenology. Um, but here we have a tool that by altering consciousness brings it into this observable space. Um, you know, one way to, to understand any complex system is to disrupt it, and like a particle accelerator, right? Mm -hmm. Dis disrupts the, the particle and forces it to reveal its secrets. Yeah, Something similar is, is possible with psychedelics. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting moment, uh, sort of this resurgence of research and interest. And it almost seems to me that it's the medicine for our times because we have so much disconnection and also yeah. we have so much strife and division and yeah. separation. Well, and look, I see so much of our crises politically and also environmentally and yeah. climate change. They're all connected. So I want, they're all connected. Maybe we should put it in the water. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's not fluoride. <laughs> and uh, somebody told me last night the chlorine would ruin the LSD. Um, <laughs> so, so bad idea. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of what ails us is the result of ego, egoistic thinking, mm-hmm. the kind of thinking mm-hmm. that allows us to both objectify nature and objectify other people. Mm-hmm. Tribalism is kind of collective egotism, yeah, right? right? And that we're different, we're better, and they're mere objects. And... LSD and psilocybin reminds you that you're more like other people than unlike that you're that we are all in this together yeah and that we are also in this together with the natural world yeah and it's it's exactly the lesson that we need to hear right now so true thank you michael for bringing this to our attention how to change your mind with the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness dying addiction depression and transcendence remember that transcendence yeah very important uh, it's a great book everybody should pick it up it's it's like a gripping uh uh adventure novel through the landscape of the mind and the history of psychedelics and the future of where we're going so thank you michael oh Pollen thank you mark always a pleasure us. to talk to you yeah you've been listening to doctor's pharmacy i hope you've enjoyed the conversation with michael Pollan. if you like this conversation please share with your friends and family on social media We'd love to hear from you. Please leave a comment and you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. And we'll see you next time on The Doctor's Pharmacy.